don't be afraid. Uh, there's no black mold, uh, but if you see some brown spots, it's, uh, I, have, I, I have nothing to say. It's not a scratch and sniff. Please don't do that. <laughs> um, anyway, I want to thank you again for your uh, faithful contributions throughout the year, your tithes and your offerings. Um, Pastor Matthew and Mariah are on vacation, so you, you're stuck with me. The good news is today's sermon has 14 points. <laughs> so we'll be here for about three hours. That won't be too shabby. Anyway, so uh, I'm teasing. Uh, it is 14 points, but it's, we're going to go through them relatively quickly. We're in our new series, The King of Kings is Coming, and it's a series that will lead us right into Easter. Easter is the last Sunday in the month of March, and so we'll have Palm Sunday and Easter uh, in March during spring break as well. And uh, this series is really... A series that has four subsections. Uh, the first subsection was no king. It was a time where we spent three weeks in the book of Judges. We looked at three of the judges. We looked at Gideon, we looked at Deborah, and we looked at Samuel, the last of the judges, who actually was not in the book of Judges, but he is at First Samuel, and uh, First Samuel ties Judges together because Eli and Samuel were the last of the two judges of Israel. So it was a time where there was no king, and the epitaph over that time period, some would say between 200, others would say all the way up to 400 years, uh, it was a time where there was no king, and the epitaph was every man did what was right in their own eyes. And so there was a lack of unity in the tribal um, lands of Israel. So the 12 tribes and even the families in each of the respective tribes were just kind of doing their own thing, and they were really defenseless against their enemies. And so now we're coming into a season and a time, and today is the first of three messages where we're looking at what we're calling man's king, section two, man's king, because the Israelites ask for a king. They, do no, they no longer want to be a theocracy. They're looking to be like the other nations around them, a monarchy. They are really envious of how other nations have become unified and they're more effective in battle. And so they're jealous and so they uh, seek their own king. And it really is an untimely request. It's an untimely request. That's why we called it man's king. It's man's request. It's kind of a carnal Request. We want to be like the other nations, so to speak. Then we'll dive into 2 Samuel for another three weeks, and that's when we'll be looking at God's king, and that is a, a timely king when God had intended to move to a monarchy. For back in Genesis 49, when Jacob, the head of the 12 sons of Israel, if you will, the 12 tribes, he was blessing his kids, and he said of Judah, there are kings in your loins. And so it is indicative of the fact that God had intended to move to a monarchy, but it was to be on his schedule, not on man's schedule. And so God's king, and this of course is King David, a Judite, a man after God's own heart, and you know his high moments and you know his low moments. We're going to try and focus on the high points of his life, some things that we can look to emulate in our lives. And then as we come to the conclusion of this uh, series, our new series, there'll be three weeks on the King of Kings. Of course, that is Jesus. And we'll look at all of his high points because he doesn't have any low points. And so that's good. Anyway, um, so uh, Judges and 1 Samuel linked, as I mentioned, because Eli and Samuel, the last two uh, of the judges of Israel. I suppose it was in that 200 to 250, 400-year period varying views on how long that is, that it was the heart of the people that were becoming more weary and more weary as they were in a cyclical kind of living. They would get to the place where they were doing good and in a good steed in God's eyes, so to speak. They were walking in a form of obedience, and then they would become complacent to the point of being apathetic, and they would fall into temptation. They would fall into sin. God would raise up a judge because the Lord would turn them over to another nation for discipline, so to speak, circumstantial discipline. Do you know what we're talking about here when we talk about how God uses our circumstance to help re-navigate and get us back on track? Anybody ever face certain circumstances that kind of help get us back on the straight and narrow? And God would do that, and God would use judges. He would raise these judges up to help bring them back into alignment. And I think they were getting very weary of this time period where they had no real substantial leadership. And so, so 
they're asking for a king. <clears throat> and I suppose that having a king, as they looked at the other nations, they probably felt that this was going to help bring them some level of unity. How many of you know that when you have a leader that is present, there is a certain sense of coming under and following. Well, I think they were struggling because it was difficult for them to see God, and uh, so their unity was challenged. <clears throat> so they come to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verses 5 through 7 and said to him, look, they said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. You're old and your boys they don't walk like you walk. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they say, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Um. Anybody ever feel that way where uh, someone has decided they don't like your leadership, someone has decided that they don't want to follow your direction? It can happen in an automobile between a husband and a wife. <laughs> She's giving directions as the navigator, and the husband decides, I'm going to go my own way. Yeah, and uh, that can cause all kinds of emotional things that uh, happen on a small scale. It happens as parents. As children get a little older, they become more independent, which is oftentimes how we raise them, but sometimes we don't agree with the way they're thinking, and sometimes their thinking deviates from our plans, and uh, yet we actually can feel some different emotions about when our children don't follow the example. I can imagine the grief that I caused my parents when I decided to live my own way and not live the way that they had raised me. I'm sure they had hurt feelings, and I'm sure they were uh, grieved over that. Well, Samuel really is no different than you and I. He, he's different in many ways in that his words didn't land on the ground. Everything that he said, God caused to occur. But uh, he's emotional, and uh, he's feeling rejected by the people. His leadership was in challenge, and God reminded him, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And a little side note, sometimes, sometimes we don't share our faith in Jesus, and oftentimes we discover that the reason people don't share their faith is because of the fear of rejection. So quick reminder from the text that it's not you that they're rejecting. Can I get an amen? They're actually rejecting the Lord and his lordship in their lives. And so there's an ensampling here for us in God's encouragement. Hey, they're not rejecting you and me. They're rejecting the Lord. And so be, be mindful of that. Then we move to 1 Samuel chapter 8, a, little few, a few verses downstream, verses 19 through 22. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So you can see immediately they're thinking, look, because we don't have a king, we're not unified. And when we try and rally people together, people are like, why am I going to fight for your behalf? I have my own battles. And it's a picture of a fractionalized people. Can I suggest that this is, a, this is an example of how the kingdom of God should not be operating? We should not be fractionalized. How many of you noticed that we prayed for a number of churches in our community this morning? That's on purpose because all of us pastors and we want our churches to be working together because we have a common mission. Can I get an amen? Every house, every home, every man, woman, and child in our community needs a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus. And he's going to use ordinary people like you and me and like all of the folks in those churches. And so we need not be fractionalized. What we need to do is be working together. Amen? I can tell you the campus club at Clackamas High School, I have those pastors coming in and speaking to the students so that we can have a more unified front and they would see any of those students could be going to any one of the churches that are preaching the gospel in our community. 
That's a good thing. Can I get an amen? We need to work together. And so we see an ensampling of how this, uh, how, how their request is not an unwise request. Uh, however, they're just, they could have done this under the uh, auspices of a theocracy, and they did not see that. So they're looking that battles could be fought together, unified. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated it, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. And so <clears throat> I suppose the Lord understands our requests, even when our requests are amiss. Have you, have you asked the Lord for things with the wrong desires? Have you asked the Lord for the wrong desire, or the wrong desired end, if you will, and uh, heard the Lord say no to you before? God understands the desires when the motives are wrong, and uh, these decisions, our decision-making can lead to trouble. But nonetheless, God allowed for a king to be established, and he allowed Saul, who would be established the king, and he gave charge to Saul over Israel. Uh, Saul would lead to some military victories. Saul had a very healthy start, right? We can look at some of the men of God in Scripture in the Old Testament. We could see a whole, a whole host of them had a really good start. How many of you know it's not how you start necessarily, but it's how you run and, more importantly, how you finish the race, right? Well, Saul started off good, and so today we're going to look at some of the very good things about the character and nature of Saul. Uh, our text today is chapter 9, and we'll read the first 10 verses. There'll be a couple other supplemental uh, reading. We're going to actually get into chapter 11. So really, Saul, his beginnings, chapter 9, 10, and 11, but specifically chapter 9, the first 10 verses. Follow along with me as I read <clears throat> these 10 verses, and then we'll look at some of the characteristics that are noteworthy, that are worthy of emulating. All right? Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. Uh, that's my life verse. That was stupid. Okay. <laughs> uh, not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he is head and shoulders above the crowd. And notable because he's handsome and he's choice. And I, I tell you, that word choice has in its definition a young a uh, viable warrior, and he's handsome to boot. So here, here's a guy who is, he's kind of like the shack of, uh, of his day. All right. Yeah, well, no. All right, here we go. It says, now, <clears throat> now the donkeys of Kish, that's more descriptive of me. <laughs> the donkeys of Kish Saul's father were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. Let me pause here for just a moment. Now we already know that Kish being a Benjamite, they live in Judah, they're, they're, they're in the uh, territory of Judah and his father has servants. This tells you that he is in a position of wealth. It's likely that he has people who owe him, and therefore there are people working to pay their debts off to him, okay? This was the means or the mannerisms, if you will, of the uh, children of Israel. So he's a man of wealth. He's got flocks. He's got a bunch of donkeys, and they're missing, and so Kish is going to take, a, or excuse me, so Saul, instructed by his father Kish, is going to take one of the servants with him to arise and to go look for the donkeys. So he, Saul, and the servant passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. 
Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Verse 5. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys, and he become worried about us. And he, that is, the servant, said to him, Look, look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at, uh, at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For, this is, uh, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So you get a little picture of the person, of this young man who's grown up in a powerful home, a man probably of influence in the tribe of Benjamin. He's probably the oldest of the sons. There is wealth, there is cattle, likely land, there is um, servants that are working, and so... and. You, you, you see a disposition of a young man that seems to be good. And I would concur that it was a good start. He probably had what we would consider very humble disposition. A humble disposition. Uh, the scripture says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives great grace to the humble. Uh, Saul. Let's, let's again reiterate the first of many C words, uh, his clan. A good heritage, his father was a powerful man, a mighty man of power, 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. Let's all be reminded that we wear our family name. We wear our family name. And that's important because it's a transferable truth that we should be raising our kids and understanding that our children, like in the Morris house, our kids were raised, you're Morrises, and Morrises do this, and Morrises don't do that. There's certain things Morrises don't do, and there's a definitive list of things that Morrises do do. Let's focus on the thing <laughs> Morrises do do. <laughs> Charlie, wait a minute. <laughs> there are things that Morrises do. Let's focus on the things that Morrises do so that you don't perceive that you're lacking anything, right? And so we raised our kids with the understanding, here's a list of things we don't do. We're not going to focus on those. Here's a list of things we can do. We're going to focus on this. This is how we live. Now, when the kids said, can I go do one of these things, we tried never to say, the reason you can't do that is because you're a Christian. Okay, moms and dads, I think this is an important lesson. I think Kim and I got one of these things figured out well when it comes to parenting because we didn't want them to be upset with God. We'd rather them be upset with us because we can take it. But we didn't want their image of who God was to be marred because God is a can-do God. It's about our focus, right? And so we would say, you can't do that because you're a Morris, and you wear my name, and we don't do that. That's not how we live. And so I see these things. I see this in Saul. Saul was wearing his family name, and he was wearing it well. He was, he was walking with his dad. He was living at home. He was a young man. He was a single man. In fact, that choiceness actually carries with it the idea he was not only a young warrior. He was not only a young man. He was not only head and shoulders above everybody else. He was not only the most handsome dude in the community. He was abstinent. He was a virgin. I just want you to know that's admirable. 
there's this list of things that we don't do in our house because you're a Morris. You abstain from sexual immorality. You abstain from fornication. In fact, we encouraged our kids, don't even, don't even necessarily date in high school because you're not ready for what the end of dating is, and that's marriage. Does that make sense? I love that all three of our kids uh, married as virgins. Can I say that out loud? Oh, I already did. Um, I'm not supposed to use my kids as sermon illustrations, uh, but I do sometimes. Anyway, they're adults now, so they can handle it. Anyway, I say that to say the beauty of raising them as Morris and them bearing the name well is when they owned their relationship with the Lord. Now, they gave their hearts to Jesus when they were very young. I mean, three, four, five years old, gave their hearts to the Lord. They probably didn't fully understand, but there were things that they got. They, they understood some of it. But as they got older, they began to possess the relationship, and they owned it, and there was a transference. You now bear our Father's name, wear his name well. There are things that are on his list of do's, and he has a list of things you ought not do. If you do these things, there's consequence. You'll pay the price. But all those things being said, they never had to be upset with God because they got to the age where they understood the why behind the what. So all those things. I look at this man. He, he's wearing his dad's name well at this point. He's actually an obedient kid. He's, he's paying attention and he's doing what he's asked to do, et cetera. And so we'll look at that. So the second, the second is his choiceness. Again, I mentioned this, a term of a young warrior. He is ready to go to battle to this very day. Every man and every woman at a young age in Israel is military material. And they all serve. 100% serve. That's powerful, especially in today's day. There are Israelites moving back to Israel right now from across the globe to serve in the, in the army. They don't have to draft. Everybody returns to fight. Men and women both. It's, it's, it's a powerful sense of unity. Uh, his choiceness, again, young men and of mature age. So he's a mature young man, okay? Uh, his consistency, he was on assignment. What did I put up there? His consistency, a man on assignment. We are men and women on assignment. Can I get an amen? We have one mission, one mission under God, right? And that is to go into all the world. We are on assignment. When we leave the rally this morning, we will be walking out. I'm going to be inviting you to grab uh, your round invites. I'm going to encourage you to take your five friend focus to pray every single day for your five friends and that you would take these as ammunition and you're ready to hand them out to every man, woman, and child you come into contact with. Can I get an Amen. Yeah, that's right. You guys are going to take him. Praise God. All right. He's on assignment, and he was consistent with the task at hand. First Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. The donkeys are kissed. They were lost. Please take one of the servants. Arise and go look for the donkeys. So he did. He passed through the mountains of Ephraim. You think that was an easy job? Have you been hiking before? Have you been backpacking you got to prepare for it. you got to wear the pack for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and go walk one mile, walk two miles, walk five miles, and you gotta, you got to get up the endurance. Man, he's up and down the hills, up and down the mountains. Then he's in the valleys, and he's going through the land of uh, Shalisha, and then he's going through the land of Sha'alim, and then through the land of the Benjamites. I mean, this, this is a deal. And? He's doing it. He's consistent with what he's been tasked with. He's about his father's business. Are you with me? You see the picture? You see the type? We need to be about our father's business wherever God would have us, wherever God would send us, wherever God would have us trek. I think he's also careful. His carefulness. 
In his search for the donkeys, it's a thorough, it's a thorough, what's that word mean? It's a thorough search. It's a thorough, that's thorough and search together, okay? Uh, it's a thorough search. He's careful about basically turning over every stone. He's looking for the donkeys. This is of great value to his father and to his family. Just like the commission is of great value to you and to me, it's of great value to God. It's God's heart that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You think that's of great value to God? He died for each one of them and he, each one of us individually and all of us collectively. Okay. He's conscientious. His conscientiousness. He's a caring man. He had more regard for others than himself. He didn't, he didn't say to his dad, Dad, I really don't want to go look for donkeys. How many, how many parents have heard these words before? In just a minute. <laughs> just a minute. Can I, can I do that when I'm finished with my game? Right? Uh, can, can I finish this uh, little text that I'm working on on my phone here and, and then get to it? Right? I remember when my dad said, uh, son, could you take out the trash? If I said, in just a minute, he got up. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When my dad stood up, you moved. You moved fast. And you, you, re, you hit the rewind button on that tape. I'd like to take those words back. <laughs> and you got moving. Man, I'm telling you, my dad moved. I remember one time I rolled my eyes because my mom asked me to do something. And I was sitting at the other end of the table. My dad was sitting at the one end of the table, and he had arms on his chair. And, uh, and I rolled my eyes, like, really, right now, Mom? All I heard was the wood chair across the uh, tile floor. You know that distinctive noise when someone's moving quickly and it goes, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even look up before my dad was on top of me like white on rice, and I was not sitting in that seat voluntarily anymore. He helped me up, and it was move now, and if you roll your eyes again, these are the kinds of words <laughs> that were used in our, I'll slap you, and your head will still be spinning tomorrow. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it was discipline. Man, he was like, you do not disrespect your mama, you move now. You move. And so I see this conscientiousness. Here's a caring man. He, he's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking, well, Dad, I was going to go do bow and arrow practice, and I, you know, I, have a, I have soccer practice a little later this afternoon with the coconuts or whatever it was. He didn't come up with an excuse. By the way, I don't think they have coconuts in Israel. <laughs> but whatever it was, he said, all right. And then while he's out, He's like, man, we've been gone a couple of days. My dad's going to stop worrying about donkeys, and he's going to start worrying about us. We, we probably should go back. He's conscientious. He's thinking about what others are thinking. Are you, are you conscientious? As a, as a Christ follower, are you mindful of what others may be thinking? Jesus encourages us to be others first. Others' needs over our own, right? That's a, that's a big principle. I mean, if we could capture that principle, we, it would transform. i tell you what, we'd be better employees. Can someone say amen? Yeah, and we need that transformation to be continued further in each of our lives. You may be on that road and you may be down that road far, but... Can all of us use a little bit of work to put others first in our lives? Yeah, all we have to do is observe you on the freeway for a little while. We'll see. Are you the one who lets that? You know, you know the car that kind of moves and speeds up a little bit and then turns their blinker on and they want to get in your lane? Do you use the accelerator to say, hey, there's room behind me but not in front of me? Right? I mean, that happened to me this morning. I was coming from the southeast campus this morning, and there was a truck on the inside lane, and I ended up getting on the freeway, and I was thinking, man, this guy's going to speed up, and he's going to just want to cut over in front of me. And I thought to myself, well, his car is small, my truck is big, 
even if I hit the accelerator, he's probably still going to get there, so just stay off the accelerator. And sure enough, man, he's moved over. He, he used his turn signal. He got in front of me, threw a bunch of water on my windshield. I was like, mm. and he got in front of the truck, or he got past the truck, and he moved over. I thought, what a conscientious guy. I was so glad I had no choice but to let him over. <laughs> yeah. Conscientiousness. It really is a, a, a definer of the life of Christ. Jesus was very conscientious. And he paid attention to the crowd. How do we know this? He was being pressed on all sides. And someone touched his, the hem of his garment. And he said, someone touched me. And his disciples said, what? The, a bunch of people are touching you. He said, yes, but someone touched me and virtue has gone out from me. And he noticed there was a woman who was shrinking back who said she had touched. And he said, woman, your faith has made you well. He was aware. He was aware of what was going on. And listen, some of us might say, well, of course he knew that because he's God. No, he knew that. He was fully man. Yes, he was God, but he did not take access to that. So his knowledge was not based on some information that he got because he's God. His information was because he was in tune with humanity. He's in tune with people and the soul and the mind and the will and the emotions of men and women. And so help us, God, to be more conscientious. Okay, let's move on. His collaboration. I love this. Verses, uh, verses 6 through 10. Man, he's a team player. Look, He's probably the oldest. We don't know that for certain, but he's probably the oldest. So he's responsible. He's got a servant. That servant works for him. But he says, let's go back to my dad because I don't want my dad to be worrying about us. Cease to worry from the donkeys and be worrying about us. And the servant said, well, wait, before we go, you know, there's a little town over here and there's a man of God there. Maybe we should go there and ask the man of God, and he'll tell us what to do. And Saul didn't just go, hey, you're not in charge here. Get lost. Get behind me and follow. We all know what it's like to work for someone who commands respect or demands respect, excuse me. Then there's those who command respect. They're collaborative, and because they invite and involve, there's a certain sense of, man, I'll follow you. And I see this in Saul's early life. He's collaborative. And this, this little dialogue in these four verses, uh, five verses, uh, he, he goes through and he says, and then he says to the servant, well said. That's a good idea, man. That's a good idea. Let's go. Let's go. And you know, and Saul's even like, well, man, our, our little you know, bread basket is empty. And uh, we don't have anything to give the guy. I mean, if he's going to help us, we should be bringing a gift to him. And then the servant says, well, man, I've got this little quarter piece of silver. We could give this to him. He says, okay, good job. And so it was a teamwork and a team effort. And how many of you know in a family things work way better as a team? We have grandbabies that come over our house, and uh, the man cave has now become a baby cave. I don't know anything about it. Well, they're not even babies. They're just little, they're grandkids. It's the grandkid cave, and there's toys everywhere. And when it's time to clean up, they start singing a song up. <laughs> they start singing a song about cleaning up. Clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. <laughs> You know, most of the time it's one of them singing and doing the work. You know, the others are just like, mm, clean up, clean up. I keep playing. But I mean, there's this idea of we should all get involved. And then I see parents go out there and instruct the kids to clean up. No, I see the parents go out there. They get on their knees and they start cleaning up. And then the kids start emulating the moms and the dads. And teamwork gets the job done. And it's efficient and it's effective. And I watch it from the couch. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all nodding. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have some things to learn, I think. <laughs> um, collaboration. Collaborate. Listen, in the kitchen, I'm collaborative. I'll taste anything she makes. 
yep, this is good. Rarely will I say things like, this needs salt. <laughs> I just add salt to everything anyway. So, uh, collaboration. Saul was in charge, but he listened to his servant. He consulted with his servant. He reasoned that it was good, and he commended his servant and took his servant's advice. I think that's brilliant. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, where there is no counsel, the people fail. So don't be isolated. Where there's no counsel, people make mistakes. Are you with me? Yeah. But then it says, but in the multitude of counselors, there's safety or there's victory. There's victory. There's a win. And we get to the win-win, and that's huge. Proverbs 11, chapter, 14, or chapter 11, verse 14. Okay, here's another little side note. I think, he's, I think he was a courteous young man. I think he was courteous. Um, they're in a foreign town, and the women are coming out to get water, and these foreigners, even though they're Israelites, they're foreigners, so to speak, they engage in conversation with women, and that, that was not a typical thing for a man to do, but they were very polite. They, they simply asked the question, is the seer here? Is the prophet in town? And man, the women went into this long dissertation, gave them instruction, and it's like, they're like, okay, thank you, and they make their way. It, it was just a courteousness. Can I suggest to you that it doesn't hurt any one of us to be courteous? Right? I mean, we teach the football players from freshman football to say please and thank you. In every engagement, when, when you go, if you need a new belt or if you need, you know, new pants or if you need to get a, a, a girdle pad or you need, you go to the cage and you say, could I please get a new belt? Can I please get a, a new girdle pad? And when it's given to them, they say, thank you, Right? Why, why would we do that? When, when, when the parents come in and they serve the pregame meal to say please and thank you when they're being served their food, we want, these, we want the students to learn politeness and courteousness because it goes a long way. It goes a long way, right? Don't you appreciate when people are polite to you? Yeah. And you notice when people aren't, right? We notice that. Okay, so courteousness, yeah, this is something to emulate. Uh, this is an interesting one, his coyness, his coyness. Now, he's not a fish, and he's not in a pond, but his coyness. Coyness, uh, there, there's a, it's a quality of uh, a feigning shyness or modesty in an, in an attempt to, you know, just kind of not disclose maybe how you necessarily feel. It's, it's coy. Uh, Saul and the servant came to Samuel and asked if he was the prophet. Samuel said yes, and then he gives instruction to Saul. He says, because God had already told Samuel that there's a Benjamite who's coming to him, he's going to be talking to him, he's to have food with you, he's to do this, he's to do this, and a number of these things. And so <clears throat> when, when Saul speaks to him this way, he says, look, all of Israel's eyes are on you and your father's house. And he, he, similar to Gideon, when the, when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said, you know, rise up, you mighty man of valor. And he's like, why would you talk to me this way? Why this manner of communication? Why would you speak these things like I'm a mighty man? I'm the least of the least of the least in my tribe. And this is exactly what Saul does in verse 21 of chapter 9. He says, and Saul answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? And yet, recognize that Saul knows his dad has wealth. Saul knows that his dad is a mighty man of power. Saul knows he's head and shoulders above everybody. On the, on the basketball court in, you know, uh, University of Israel, he's dominating under the, you know, in the paint. He's the guy. He knows these things, and he's like, he's deferring them out. He's not boastful. He's modest. And how many of you know that modesty, when it's a self-awareness thing, that, that's a valuable trait, to not think too highly of oneself, are you with me? Because the alternative is simply pride. And guess where Saul's going to end up? He's going to end up in a heap of pride. So man, his beginnings were good. He had a 
healthy disposition of himself. I think this is something that each of us ought to have. It doesn't matter. I remember when I became, you know, something in the steel industry in, in our, I mean, I'm, I'm going to all of the local plants for the, you know, petroleum. I'm over at Chevron off of Kitteridge. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm like a wheel. I walk in and the plant manager introducing himself to me because I'm the guy that's providing all of their 55-gallon steel drums. And it was like a thing. And I remember I used to introduce myself. I was like, I was all proud. I'm like, well, I'm the operations general manager, blah, 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 blah. Here's my pedigree, blah, 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 blah. Do you think anybody cared? No. But I did. And it was pride. It was pride. And I'm so thankful that God knocked me down a few notches. He said, yeah, resign. <laughs> he goes, I got a different plan for you. I was like, okay. Yeah, and none of that matters. None of it matters, right? And so let's, let's have a healthy disposition. Okay, let's not belabor these. Okay, his compliance. I love this. Uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. At the end of the day, I'll let you read these verses. But man, he's a trustworthy guy. He's obedient to his dad. He's obedient to the prophet. And he seems to be compliant to those who give instruction or advice over his life. So he's, he's got a good sense about him. He's humble in his own eyes. He's compliant. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. He's, he's, not, he's not lording things over people. He's simply uh, walking in these things. Well, let's see if I have page four. There it is right there. All right, and it is 1117, which means almost nothing. Okay. <laughs> I'm almost done. Uh, his conversion. I think this is the most significant thing, and uh, chapter 10, verse 9 says, And so it was when he had turned back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. The prophet Ezekiel reminds us that God will take a heart of flesh and he'll replace it with a heart. He'll take a heart of stone and he'll replace it with a heart of flesh. He gave Saul a new heart, so to speak. And uh, when the signs came to pass that day, when they... Uh, came there to the hill, there was a group of the prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him. So God gave him a new heart, and the Spirit of God descended upon his life. It's a conversion. And God is in the business of changing hearts. Are you a candidate to continue to have God change your heart? If you are, just a quick raise of the hand, say, yeah, I'm still a candidate to have God do a work in my heart. And I still want the Spirit of God to come upon me afresh. I still want the Spirit of God to fill me anew, refill me day in, day out. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Can I get an amen? If you're a candidate, hey, that's, I mean, we could end the sermon right here and say, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, Lord, yes. But I still have four more points, so we won't. <laughs> okay, his constraint. Um, verses 14 through 16 in chapter 10. This is kind of a, this is, this again is a little bit of his coyness because he's now, he's been with the prophet and now he's going home and he sees his uncle and his uncle asks him, where have they been? Where did you go? Where have you been? He says, well, I went to look for the donkeys. And then we couldn't find him, so we went to the prophet. We went to Samuel, and it's like his uncle knows who Samuel is. All Israel knows who Samuel is. And he's like, Samuel? Well, what did Samuel have to say? And, he, and then he just says, well, he told us that the donkeys were found. But he doesn't tell him any of the other stuff. Like, I'm going to be anointed king over Israel. I was, I was, he poured oil over me, and I'm going to be the king. He doesn't, he, he doesn't say any of that. And I, and I wonder, because the text doesn't tell us why he doesn't say that. Again, I actually believe it's because he was probably afraid. I, I think that maybe he felt, have you ever felt this way? You've been asked to do something, you don't know how to do it? Yeah? Anything electronic, that happens in my house. <laughs> We're having problems with the cable in the, in the man cave or in the baby, the, uh, the, the, the little kid's cave. And uh, Kim says, can you help me with the cable out here? I'm like, nope. <laughs> That's a job for Matt or Wesley. <laughs> and they come in and they fix it. Right? I mean, I've been asked to do jobs. I have no idea how to do that. I mean, when God called me to be and plant a church, I said, are you kidding me? I have no idea what I'm doing. Call Charlie and Linda and say, help. <laughs> what do we do? I mean, we didn't know what to do. Kim, did we know what to do? We had no idea what to do. 
And here we are this year, 20 years later, and God's doing something. And it's not because we were so, ooh, look at us, we're so smart. No, we were like, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. So we painted a gymnasium, and that got the ball rolling, right? Yeah. So he, he has constraint. He's, again, this is, it's a kind of coyness, uh, a quality of being reluctant to give details about something regarded uh, as maybe good. Ha, has good happened to you? And you're talking with someone that's going through difficulty? Do you, like, oh, but look what's happening in my life, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, really? No, we, we have constraint. We're reserved. We're reticent to give too much detail, right? And I think, this, I think he's just got, this is, there's an appropriateness for that, right? There's a time and a place to give all the information, and there's a time and a place to be quiet, right? And I think, he's, I think he had that figured out at this point in his life. It won't always be that way. He'll become very demanding in some situations. His chosenness. I, I would just say this. He's a selected man, and you and I, we have been chosen. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We're a peculiar people. We're his. We belong to him. He picked us. Remember in gym class when you stood on the wall and they were picking the basketball teams? You're like, I don't want to be the last one standing here. You're never going to be the last one standing because God's already picked you. God picked you. He picked you. That says something. You have great value. Great value. And he was chosen by God. I did mention that he had a little bit of the cowardly lion in him. How many of you are familiar with the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, the cowardly lion. <laughs> you know, he's, he's always kind of talking like, he's, he's like, I'm bravado. And then it's like when the real trouble comes, he's like, you know, he backs up behind the tin man. You know, he's like, come on, come at us. You know, he, he, there's a little cowardliness in him. And when it was time for Saul to be anointed king, he's hiding. He's hiding amongst the stuff. And so they inquire of the Lord, hey, has he shown up? Him who is going to be anointed, who, who has been anointed king, we're going to establish his king. Kingship, is he here? And God has to say, yeah, he's over here hiding amongst the stuff. And so they go and they get him and they bring him out. I mean, here's the biggest guy on the team and he's hiding. Again, I think, I think he probably doesn't know what this is going to entail. This is a job that I'm not fit for. Can, are you thankful that God does not pick us because of our ability, but he picks us because of our availability? Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. Finally, kind of a last lesson, number 14, his confidence. Chapter 11, verses 6 and 7 says, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul, so he's come upon him a couple of times now, uh, and when he heard this news, and it was news of uh, some of the Israelites were going to be put into bondage, and they were going to have their eyes gouged out, or one of their eyes gouged out, and man, when Saul hears this, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He heard the news and his anger was greatly aroused, so he took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers. says, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to his oxen. So he's like, all right, I'm going to rally up some troops and I'm going uh, to make this real graphic. Everyone's showing up. So he chops up a bunch of oxen and he sends the pieces out to the people and says, you show up for battle or we're coming to your house and your oxen are going to get butchered by us. Guess what? They showed up in number <laughs> and they were ready to fight. They were ready to fight and God gave them a great victory as a result. And so the spirit of God, listen, his confidence was not in his ability to butcher cows. The Spirit of God had come upon him and aroused in him an indignatious anger because of the injustice that was being purported to them. And he says, not on my watch. Not on my watch. This is not going to happen, and this is how we're going to make sure it doesn't. We're going to unify the people. And how we're going to unify the people was a little fear of God in them. We'll put a little fear of God in them, right? Listen, if you knew Jesus was coming tonight at 6 p.m., he was returning tonight. The rapture was tonight at 6 p.m. You'd get busy, wouldn't you? You'd get busy. 
Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus could come tonight at 6, or 6.01, because no man knows the day or the hour. (laughs) 6.01, I can't tell you it's 6. I'm just saying, hey, we got to get busy. we got to get busy. The butchered cow has gone out, so to speak, and it's now for us to get out and do our assignment. Can I get an amen? We are the army of God, and we must be about our Father's business. So his confidence was in the presence of God. Listen, he says, If you don't go out with Saul, me, and Samuel, the presence of God. Remember Barak when he was called to go to battle? Deborah says, did not God give them into your hands already? She's prophesying, God has given them to you. He says, "I, I won't go unless you go. The prophetess, the presence of God. The presence of God. So confidence in the presence of God. Trusting in the Lord, in the mighty power of God. Listen, we are mighty through God pulling down strongholds. Right? In the supernatural realm. We're not mighty in, you know, John Mahaffey. We're not mighty in Charlie Schaefer, Ken Safe, right? Mike W. Woodski. (laughs) We're not mighty in and of ourselves. We're mighty in God. Can I get an amen? How many of us would like to be more mighty in his power, right? Yes, Spirit of God, come upon us. Come upon us in the power of his might. And so, worship team, come on back up here. I don't know, Reuben, if it's just you. Uh, we're going we're gonna to conclude with this. In fact, I'll invite you all to stand. Why don't you stand with me this morning? It is 27, 11, 27. I don't know when Pastor Matt normally finishes, probably like 11, 17 or something like that. My, my bad. Uh, anyway... Um, it's before 11.30. That's something. <laughs> um, Reuben's going to lead us in this worship song as a conclusion. I want to remind you of three things. Number one, we are to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be about the gospel. And, and these traits point to the kind of living that Jesus lived. Saul's early life was an ensampling to you and I. And we, we need God's spirit to come upon us fresh. Can I get an amen? To embolden us, to empower us, to enable us to get beyond ourselves and to go forward. And so I want to remind every one of you to have with you your five-friend focus. If you do not have one of these, it is a hillside church initiative. It's an enterprise event. We want every single person who calls Hillside home to have this, that you would be praying for five of your friends that don't know Jesus and that these five friends, you're believing that the Spirit of God is going to use you to help point them to Jesus. Maybe it's making an invite to church and that's why the second initiative that we have are these round invites that we would take these round invites, a couple of them every single week and that we wouldn't accumulate them in our cars or in our Bibles but that we would be using them as a way to invite someone to come to church. It calls you and I for boldness because they might reject us and they might say, I don't want to go to church. But remember, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting God. And so I want to encourage in all those. And I just want to pray and then Reuben's going to conclude us with this song. So Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That in Christ and in Christ alone, our sins are forgiven. When we put our hope and our faith and trust in Jesus, our names are written in your book in heaven. We have eternity to look forward to. You said, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me will never die. Lord, we have eternal life today, and we want others to know Jesus.